0: Welcome into our brand new podcast, The Power Alley. I'm your host, the voice of the Bisons, Pat Malacaro. Here each month, we'll not only keep you up to date on the very latest going on with the Bisons, but also check in and find out what's going on throughout baseball. Here on the first episode of The Power Alley, we'll check in with Sportsnet's Shai Davide, get a recap on the 2018 season for the Toronto Blue Jays, and what's next as the team heads into this offseason. But first, the New Hampshire Fisher Cats finished off a very successful 2018 with an Eastern League Championship title, going six and 0 in the postseason. Broadcaster and media relations manager Tyler Murray was along for the ride from start to finish. Tyler, thanks for taking a couple of minutes with us here today. What an exciting 2018 season that the Fisher Cats had.
1: Just incredible. When you think about all the expectations that were put upon this team when the opening day roster came out, and you saw all those big names. Of course, you knew it was going to be a fun season, but for it to culminate in the team's first championship since 2011, uh, just a remarkable season. It's one we're going to be talking about for a long time here in New Hampshire.
0: And I know that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. gets a lot of the at least early headlines of 2018, not only for New Hampshire, but in all of baseball. But Really, when you look over the roster in where the team started to where they finished, you can really point to the organizational depth, I feel, of the Toronto Blue Jays in really helping New Hampshire from almost wire to wire be a, a very good team in the uh, Eastern League uh, to a 76-62 and 62 record.
1: Yeah, I think just in the last couple of years, we've seen this organization go from, uh, you know, a system with a few bright points to one that is really, really deep. And I think the catching position is a great example of that. Uh, just a few years ago, you're looking at maybe AJ Jimenez and and not a lot else. But now you've got both Reese McGuire and Danny Jansen making an impact at the big league level. Max Pentecost and Pat Cantwell here in Double A really helping the Fisher Cats to a championship. So, I mean, that's just one example. But you you look at the three uh, legacy guys, I guess we'll call them. You got Vlad, Bo, and Kevin. It was all about Vlad and Bo when the season began. But Biggio winds up winning MVP It's another example of how deep this system is from the most marquee guys to the guys who provide um, really the the boots on the ground kind of depth uh, for this system. So it's a pretty exciting time to be a Blue Jays fan.
0: When you think back at the season that Kevin Biggio had this past year, how did he maybe evolve as a player or what were your maybe expectations and how did uh, 2018 play out in your eyes?
1: we looked at him his first two professional years he made an all-star team he had some strong numbers so we were expecting a solid year but when you look at him first half versus second half it tended to kind of drop off a little bit after the all-star break for him and maybe here in the second half his power numbers weren't quite as good as he he was just one home run shy of the regular season record uh... for home runs he wound up with twenty six in the regular year and one in the playoffs so I mean, take it or leave it, he essentially tied that record by Eric Thames. But for him, he was a lot more consistent throughout the year than he was his first two seasons, and that's what helped him accumulate those big numbers, get a great stat line to end the season. And for him, he was willing to make the adjustments. He's got that uppercut home run swing out to right field. And working with hitting coach Hunter Mentz looking at that film, working hard in the cages. He's just a guy willing to make adjustments and improvements, and I think you're going to see that continue as he moves up the organization.
0: You mentioned the legacy players, and I know uh, when the rosters were announced originally for the Arizona Fall League, all all three, Bo Cavan and Vladimir Guerrero Jr., were all going to go to the Fall League. For Cavan playing the outfield in the Fall League, you know, is that an area where he can really continue to grow and develop as a player in your eyes?
1: Yeah, you know, and this isn't a canned answer. Uh, We've seen him. We played him once or twice in right field, and he was good. I mean, he tracked the ball well. He had a a nice running catch and a good throwback to first base that almost wound up in a double play. So I get asked a lot about uh, could Vlad play the outfield. I don't really know. I haven't seen it. Uh, We've seen Kevin play out there in right field a little bit, and I think he could get it done. And I think more to the point, the fact that they're trying him in the outfield means that the Blue Jays really do see a future for this guy. You look at our opening day infield, they had Cavan at first, Lourdes Gurriel at second, Bo at shortstop, and then Vlad at third. It was almost like they were jamming Cavan in there at first, which he played very well. Uh, But to look at him as a potential future outfielder, I think that's a great sign for him, and uh, maybe it's a new avenue for him to get to the major leagues.
0: And I feel like, at least here in Buffalo, over the six years of the Blue Jay affiliation, outfield is one position that really, organizationally, depth has been a very positive for this team. I think of guys like Kevin Pillar in their time working up the organizational ladder, or even this year, where it seems like everybody that played outfield for the Bisons this year was on the 40-man at some point, has been to the big league. So outfield has been a position of strength for Toronto, and to even boost that even further I, I think shows great signs uh, for this organization. Yeah, that's a good
1: point. The one thing I've always looked at is how well can the Blue Jays develop their offensive talent, and I think they're getting so much better at it the last couple of years, and maybe that's just the guys they're They're drafting and signing, or maybe it's the coaching. But uh, you talk about the the outfield, I think defensively it is top of the line, including Jonathan Davis, who was great to see him make his debut this year. We know Anthony Alford is an athletic freak in the outfield. You said Kevin Pillar. I mean, there's no one better than him. Uh, But I think Biggio could also add uh, that bat that maybe doesn't always come along with a major league outfielder, at least in, in his younger development uh, levels in the Blue Jays system. So I think uh, you you might see an influx of more well-rounded players coming up in the outfield positions as
0: well. Here on the Power Alley, we're talking to Tyler Murray from the New Hampshire Fisher Cats for a couple of moments, and Tyler, let's touch on the catching position for a second. You mentioned Max Pentecost, and he's a player that maybe has gotten lost in the shuffle, so to speak, with the the rise of Danny Jansen and reese mcguire but you know looking at the numbers the eastern league player of the month for august uh how how is max in 2018 and and his maybe leadership behind the plate in helping the pitching staff
1: i mean this year was so big for max and i don't think the fisher cats are champions without him he had the dramatic go-ahead three-run homer in the playoff clinching game late in the season he had a big home run in game two of the postseason against the Trenton Thunder as well to overcome an early deficit. And he was frustrated early in the year. I mean, he was trying to get fully healthy at the same time as trying to figure out double A pitching, which is, up, of course, such a big step up from advanced day. So there was so much going on. And you saw him hit 179 in June when he was finally getting consistent reps behind home plate. And you wondered. Well, when is it going to click? You said it, Pat. It clicked in August, big time. And I I think just that one month alone, I mean, we don't harp too much on guys for one bad month, so maybe it's uh, unfair to give a guy credit for just one good month. But I, I really think you have to look at his most recent work and give him a ton of credit for what he was able to do and a great contributor in the playoffs as well. So it felt like everything came together for Max toward the end, the health, the consistency, And he's getting better at blocking the ball behind home plate. John Schneider, the manager and former catcher for the Fisher cats, such a big help for him in 2018. So maybe Max fell off the radar in the last couple of years because of injury. But if you ask me, he should be right back in the forefront of uh, people's minds in terms of uh, the future behind home plate.
0: Well, and that's great to hear. And you know, one of the things that folks had asked me about Reese and Danny was what doesn't show up on the score sheet that should people know. And, and, I always came back to the fact that those two guys wanted to lead the pitcher meetings. And those are spots where usually, you know, a pitching coach and your manager have a big say in, in those meetings. But it was really those two guys behind the plate and the maturity that we saw. And, and I'm wondering if there's, there's something like that. You mentioned, you know, the defensively behind the plate and blocking the baseball. Are there things that you've seen from Max that have helped him turn into the player he was in, in August and put it all together?
1: Oh, absolutely. And he knows and he needs to take on that leadership role with the pitching staff as well. And a guy I mentioned earlier has been a big help uh, bringing him along in that department, uh, Pat Cantwell, a guy who uh, was maybe an afterthought. He was drafted by the the Rangers in the third round back in 2012 and wound up with the Blue Jays. And he was just such a huge leader for the pitching staff and and for Max as well. I mean, you, you look at Pat he probably has the edge defensively behind home plate. And whenever there were uh, workouts with uh, just the catchers and John Schneider, it was Pat helping out Max a little bit with some of his techniques, and then, of course, Max sharing his wisdom on the back end. I mean, he's an 11th overall pick, so Max knows what he's doing. But it was uh, it was impressive to see those two guys working together and what wound up being a really good tandem behind home plate.
0: Of course, we can't talk about the, the catchers without their battery mates on the mound, the pitching staff, and – it's funny, as as the season evolved, it felt like the Bisons had raided the Fisher-Cats bullpen in taking pretty much everybody at, at some point, and the ability to sort of refresh those arms in the bullpen, how did the bullpen fare this season in terms of, Maybe guys that you knew would be coming up at some point, or even guys that, like Justin Dillon, who maybe started the year down in AA and joined the pitching staff in the starting rotation, that sort of helped the Fisher Cats along. I think the bullpen
1: was the story of the postseason for the Fisher Cats. You had a great group of guys who maybe don't jump off the page as those top prospects, aside from the closer Travis Bergen, who gave up two runs all year here, both on solo home runs. And then it, the guys who were remaining by the end of the season, you had Jackson McClellan called up, and he can throw near triple digits pretty consistently. So he jumped off the page. Um, but then you've got these crafty lefties. Corey Copping came over as well in a trade. So there's, it was kind of a, a mishmash of uh, interesting characters in the bullpen, and it was fair to wonder how it would go in the postseason, especially looking at some of the recent numbers. But we found out that there's a big difference between giving a guy – a long leash with a regular season inning and seeing how he fares versus in the playoffs, John Schneider and Vince Horstman managing the bullpen like a big league situation. And the guys responded so well to that. You'd have Dusty Isaacs come in to strike out a righty with a couple of guys on base. You'd go to Danny Young, the sidearm lefty, to take care of a couple of left-handed batters, and then you'd piece it together from there. And there wasn't a single guy out of the Fisher Cats bullpen who had a disappointing performance in the postseason. It was a remarkable uh, combined effort, and there were I don't think there was a single lead that the Fishercats gave up in the postseason because of that great bullpen.
0: And it must have been such a nice feeling for the starting pitchers to know that they can go as long as they need or short if they don't have a good start, that you've got such a good bullpen behind it to either keep the team in the game or preserve a lead uh, to go 6-0 and in the playoffs.
1: That's right, and what Schneider told us is that he learned in his first two playoff runs with the Vancouver Canadians, his strategy in the playoffs is, if my starter doesn't have it, it's going to be a quick hook. And we only had to see that once with Hector Perez, who I thought was pitching fine, but maybe a few too, too many walks mixed in. They got him out. They brought in Taylor Saucedo, who was just terrific out of the bullpen. He threw, I think, three and a third innings of one-hit baseball to lead the Fishercats to a win there. And just the rotation, to be able to roll out Jordan Romano in game three of each of the playoff rounds as the clinching pitcher, he was voted best right-handed starting pitcher of the year by Eastern League managers and media. So when you're able to send T.J. Zoic out there, who looks like a surefire big leaguer, and then Hector Perez or John Harris for Game Two, and then you still have Jordan Romano waiting for Game Three. I mean, that's uh, that's tough to deal with for opposing hitters, and it clearly was with the Fisher Cats going undefeated in the postseason.
0: We're talking to Tyler Murray here on the Power Alley, and you touched on a couple of the names I want to ask you about. How how did John Harris and Jordan Romano fare after getting a taste of AAA life for Romano? At the time, he was called up to Buffalo to be a starter, part of a doubleheader. He was 8-0, and I know it's so hard to keep up that success level, but you know, how did those two pitchers um, react to coming back down to New Hampshire and, and finish out the season?
1: Well, they both knew, at least talking to them before they went up, that it was only expected to be one start and then back down. And, of course, everyone responds back to that by saying, "Oh, you never know, pitch well, you could stay. And both of those guys did pitch very well. And it was interesting because when they both came back, it was um, maybe not as much success as we saw in the first couple of months from those two. Uh, So they both kind of went to work with Vince Horseman, and it's something that's become a narrative for them this season. they they made the adjustments with how well they were hiding the baseball. Um, And Jordan Romano, he used to uh, let go of the baseball or take the ball out of his glove in his windup up near his eyeballs. Now it is it down by his belt, which I guess gives him more uh, consistent mechanics. At least that's what they tell me. And then John Harris, he turned away from the batter a little bit with his delivery, and he's got first-round stuff. He was a first-round pick, but it wasn't necessarily translating to his numbers. And I heard from a couple of scouts actually saying, I look at John Harris's stuff, I look at his stats, and it doesn't match up. He's got much better stuff than his numbers show. So now with hitters getting a bit of a a later reaction on his deliveries, it really showed up big time. And uh, in that game two against Akron, he attacked hitters like we've never seen before. He had a great game plan. He knew that was a singles-hitting lineup. And in a game that the Rubber Ducks needed to win to avoid going down 0-2 in the championship series, they just did not have a chance against Harris, and that was was exciting to see.
0: In 2018 was another uh, solid season for manager John Schneider at the helm of a Blue Jay affiliate. Manager of the Year in the Eastern League. What could you tell Bison fans that maybe haven't had a chance to either tune into a broadcast or follow along? What has John Schneider meant um, to the players in New Hampshire and and even his development uh, as a manager of the Blue Jays organization? I mean,
1: players love playing for this guy, and the front office staff loves having him lead the team and be a representative of the team. Um, Something um, our, our clubhouse manager said was that He's worked with so many different managers before. Some have been uh, low-maintenance, like a Gary Allenson, who you're familiar with. And others, they have daily requests to make things better for the players. Hey, can we get this set up? Can we play this music? Can we schedule this a little bit more conveniently for the team? And you look at it from one angle, maybe that's high-maintenance, but with John Schneider, it doesn't feel that way because he's a terrific guy, a great leader, and you want to do everything you can for a team led by John to put the team in the best position to win, and, and there's no surprise that people bring his name up when it comes to the major league level. And I, it was tough to live up to the expectation that was presented for John Schneider, moving up one level each of the last four years. Everywhere he goes, everybody says he's great, but I mean, he is. He, he knows what players need. He knows what it takes to win, and he is a brilliant baseball mind. If you talk to him about spin rates and launch angle he will blow your mind about how much goes into his everyday lineup construction. So uh, uh, I hope that uh, you get to talk to him about that one day, Pat, either if he's maybe in Buffalo next year, maybe even higher up, maybe here in New Hampshire. Uh, it's a guessing game at this point, but I think he deserves a, a look in the big leagues for
0: sure. Tyler, I appreciate your time today. Uh, look forward to catching up again this offseason, and thanks for joining us here in the Power Alley. Can't wait to hear the episode. Great job getting it off the ground, Pat, and thanks for having me on. Welcome back into the Power Alley as we're joined by Shai Davidi to talk about the Toronto Blue Jays for a couple of minutes. And, Shai, first of all, thanks for for joining us here today and, and looking forward to catching up on the 2018 season for the Blue Jays.
2: Yeah, my pleasure, Pat.
0: Let's start with maybe just a broad overarching view of 2018 in Toronto. Maybe what were your expectations for the team going into the season, and were those met, or, or did, did that change as the season went along?
2: Well, there's a couple ways to answer that. I'll, I'll start it this way. You know, there was the scenario that you know, the Blue Jays could have had everything go right, and they were certainly banking on a lot of things with a very narrow margin. Uh, and that would have made them a, a competitive ball club in 2018. Uh, and that was one of the possibilities going into the season. And certainly it didn't happen. And they ended up embarking on a rather sizable transition as they sold off all their win-now pieces, or a, a good majority of their win-now pieces. You know, the um, the flip side to is that you do you going into the season that that was the possibility. And there was a lot of debate in terms of whether they should be trying to maximize the the competitive window that had been started by Alex Anthopoulos, the former general manager, or if they should have just embarked on the rebuild right in the offseason and not waited for uh, the season to tell them. So, you know, those were the sort of the thoughts and the expectations, the, the thinking points going in. And, you know, I thought that if everything went right, and certainly objective measures like, like uh, you know, Fangrass was predicting them at a, as an 84-85 win team, you know, suggested that they could have happened for them, but they really needed everything to go right. They had very, very little margin for error. Uh, you know, pretty much everything they, they could, that they couldn't have, afford to go wrong went wrong, and they ended up transitioning. And so they're in a very different place right now. They're a team that's that's building towards the future, waiting for some of their prospects to develop. They've already integrated some prospects and. You know, now they, they went from a win-now team to a building for the future team abruptly and quickly.
0: And I think of a guy like Ryan Barucki, maybe perfect for this conversation, somebody who came up because of the injury to Aaron Sanchez in June and not maybe knowing how many starts he would make in the big leagues, all of a sudden he's accumulated over a half a season of big league time and really could factor into the plans going forward uh, as a left-handed starter for this Blue Jay team.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for for the Blue Jays to have been competitive, they needed all their guys to stay healthy, and then they would have needed someone like Ryan Baraki to come up and give them a boost. Uh, Instead, Ryan Baraki came up, and the team was sort of in salvage mode. They were just desperate to to fill innings, but he really emerged as someone, uh, a building block for the future. And, you know, at the end of the season, I had someone describe him to me as, you know, young Jay Happ, which is uh, about as, as high a compliment as you can pay to a, a young pitcher in the Blue Jays organization. And and he's he was certainly that. You know, he was terrific at, at Buffalo. He deserved the opportunity. He was due for the opportunity. Uh, and he certainly made the most of it. And and what, to me, was just as impressive is that a lot of the times when he faced a team the second time through, they, he was still just as effective, sometimes even more effective than he was the first time. So, so that tells you that his stuff is is really playing and he's got a pretty good idea of what to do with it.
0: I found it funny in August when Danny Jansen went up to the big leagues and he kind of mentioned how he was kind of looking up to Ryan because he had the most experience of some of those younger guys that, that grew together through the organization. And Baruchy was like the old man of that group because of coming up and sticking since June.
1: Yeah, he, he
2: he was definitely the first and, you know, it's, it's interesting. I had a conversation with Kevin Pillar on the last day of the season, and he was talking about some of the transition of the young players, and he looked at the, the bond that they had growing up through the minor leagues together. And not that he was envious of it, but he said, you know, that's what we had here in 2015, and we lost it a little bit, uh, and it's good to see that back. And he really appreciated that. He really appreciated getting to know them. And you're right, you know, Ryan Breck in a lot of ways was the first. And a lot of those guys really appreciate Ryan because of his story and everything that he's endured to get to the big leagues. You know, Danny Jensen, in some ways, a bit of a similar story. Guys who had the beginnings of their career stopped and started by, by injuries, sometimes severe, that they had to overcome, uh, overcome some doubts, overcome the loss of playing time. And uh, and you're right. You know the, the bond that that was that existed um, carried through. And Ryan Beraki was the guy that they all looked to because he was the first one to make it.
0: Shai Davidi is joining us for a couple of minutes here in the Power Alley. And another pitcher I wanted to ask you about was Sean Reed Foley and his big league debut and then call up uh, right before September 1st back to the big leagues. And you know for a guy who knew that this year was such an important season after struggling last year in Double A. Um, I, I thought the maturity for Sean this year in, in taking that head on and pitching so well at double-A and here at triple-A and not letting his rocky first couple of starts in the big leagues um, really get to him was a good positive sign for, for that pitcher moving forward.
2: Sure, and, and really a lot of 2017 for Sean Foley was about developing this change-up and understanding that that needs to be a weapon for him and it can't just be, you know, pounding fastballs by guys Uh, and then you saw him uh, put it all together this past season and and, and get that call up Uh, and there's still some development there I think that's really the consensus around the Blue Jays that the the stuff is clearly going to play he can overpower big league hitters he can get them to swing and miss Uh, you know that that 10 strikeout five inning outing at Yankee Stadium was really symbolic of that or evidence of that but being able to put it together consistently is, is sort of the next step right now and understanding how all his different weapons work together. That's, that's really what's left for him. And, you know, that was, in a sense, he's almost uh, maybe, this is maybe an odd way to describe it, but he's almost like a year behind Ryan Barucki, although he got his big league touch a little bit quicker. And Ryan Barucki had that extra half season of minor league development and Uh, really got to put all the pieces together there and maybe that's what's next for sean reed foley Uh, but he was he was very impressive in terms of what he can do with his fastball how major league hitters react to it and and that's something that the blue Jays don't have that power arm type of pitcher Uh, and sean reed foley could certainly fill that void
0: we mentioned some of the pitching depth that has made their big league debut this year Uh, how about a couple of guys who uh, made it to the Blue Jays this season on the infield we saw Richard Ureña in last September uh, make such a uh, big presence felt on the Blue Jays roster and then this year kind of an up and down year seeing time in the big leagues and and injuries sort of hampered his 2018 a little bit how do you feel that both Richard Ureña and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. um, maybe factor into the future plans and how they performed in 2018.
2: Well, I mean, right now, the way that everything's positioned, you know, Lourdes Gurriel appears to be on the big league roster to stay, uh, unless he shows that he's not capable. And, you know, the Blue Jays love what he did offensively. Uh, they really liked the defensive improvements he made after the, the second time he was called up, and he was a lot steadier in the field. And, you know, as things stand right now, based on what we know today, I'd say that he is the starting shortstop for the Toronto Blue Jays uh, come opening day 2019. Um, of course, uh, that, can, that can change. And, you know, Richard Urania is, you know, he's been around for a while. We've been talking about him for a while. We forget that he's, he's still so young. And, you know, in chatting with him after the season, he admitted that it took him a while to understand how to cope with, uh, you know, being shuttled back and forth on the, on the option train between Toronto and Buffalo. And, you know, he's got an idea of what he wants to do this offseason. He wants to get a little bit leaner. He wants to he wants to really work, focus on a few things defensively that he felt uh, he was a bit inconsistent with. And he wants to really refine his approach at the plate to become a bit more selective, which will probably make him be a better hitter. So, uh, you know, again, as things stand now, I, I look at him as a guy who's potentially on this club, depending on what happens with some of the other infielders. But he could also begin the season back with uh, with Buffalo, just honing those skills and waiting for an opportunity.
0: And as we look at the offseason a little bit here, I know general manager of the Blue Jays, Ross Atkins, has met with the media uh, this week and sort of the debrief of 2018 and looking forward. And what do you get the sense of maybe the the roster turnover with uh, with the emergence of some of these younger players and the ability to then maybe flip the depth a little bit or capitalize on some of the, the players that have been here for a while that, you know, three names that come up are Aaron Sanchez, Marcus Stroman, and Kevin polar, and maybe the ability to uh, get a return for a couple of those guys in the offseason.
2: Yeah, I certainly think that they've they examined that over the course of the offseason, um, perhaps even aggressively, depending how things play out. But you know, the the overarching view of things is that they've got a, a big crunch coming up on their forty man roster, uh, in terms of having to add some some players from the younger levels and not a lot of room because uh, you know, the only couple of guys are coming off in Estrada and Tyler Clippard, and, you know, those spots are gonna be taken by Troy Tulowitzki needs to be reinstated from the sixty-day DL, and, and uh, Julian Merriweather, who's the player to be named in the, the Josh Donaldson deal, which is going to happen uh, shortly. So, you know, you know that that's going to be the challenge, and I think that's going to force the Blue Jays to try and trade off some of their their depth, whether it's from the minor leagues or from the big league level. Uh, but they do have a lot of surplus, both in the infield, both in the outfield. They need some pitching, and you know, Ross Atkins pretty blatantly or explicitly stated that they're going to have to start turning over some of their position players into pitching. So I think they're going to be very active in that regard uh, in terms of how they do it. They're going to have a number of different options, but the the deadline in early November to set 40-man rosters has really put a bit of a clock on it.
0: And even before the 40-man rosters are set, the, maybe the biggest decision for Ross and the Blue Jays front office will be, who will be the next manager for the team in 2019, John Gibbons, um, you know, just finishing up his tenure, his second tenure as Blue Jay manager. And, and just listening to and reading some of the comments from, from Ross's conversation the other day, the ability for the next manager to collaborate in all aspects of the game and with with everybody in the Blue Jays organization, um, how important is that going to be? And maybe in terms of the next wave of managers as we've seen that sort of collaborative effort uh, really been a focus of teams the last couple of years.
2: Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. I got a, after hearing Ross's very uh, detailed, uh, description of what the ideal manager looks like. I got a text from someone in, uh, in, the, in the baseball industry. He said, hey, I, I know who the, the next Blue manager is. And he sent me a, a unicorn emoji, uh, which I thought was was a pretty, pretty good description of, of what they're searching for. But I, I do think the next person is going to be someone who's going to be far more involved in all aspects of the team as you you just touched on there you know John Gibbons was very much I'm worried about the 25-man roster you know maybe a handful of guys at AAA who are knocking on the door who we may need to shuffle up to bring up at some point or, or on our radar in case of injury he's keeping tabs on those kind of guys but otherwise you know that was his his focus was on winning the baseball game that night and and that's to his credit. He did a great job of that over his career. And even when he didn't have a great roster, he, he did his best with what he had to, to put his players in positions to win. Uh, but the, the, the role has evolved in a significant way in recent years. And this is a, a front office that's operating a lot differently than the one that hired John Gibbons to manage the club. They're going to be looking for some different things out of their manager. And, you know, that ability to, you know, process and synthesize information at different levels and different areas uh and be involved in more than just what's impacting the big league roster that's going to be i think really important for the next manager and something that i I think we're going to see play out in whoever they hire
0: well shy i appreciate uh couple minutes of your time here today to talk about the Blue Jays and this past season and going forward. Looking forward to following along as well as the offseason will keep you busy. Thanks for a couple of minutes of your time.
2: My pleasure, Pat. Look forward to hearing all about the Bisons from you next year as well.
0: Thanks for joining us on the first episode of the Power Alley. We look forward to bringing you the latest on the Bisons and baseball as the offseason continues. Check back each month here on Bisons.com. I'm Pat Melicaro. Hope to talk with you next time here on the Power Alley.